0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray.
1: Father, you are in fact remarkably generous. You are gracious and kind. You have deep pockets and open hands, and you pour out on us blessing upon blessing, far more than we could ever imagine and far more than we deserve. You give and you give and you give in kind ways and in profound ways and sometimes in difficult ways, sometimes in hard-to-see ways, and sometimes in staggering and stunning and kind ways. So... We say happily, thankfully, you are a generous and good God. A Father who is attentive to our cry, who has a face turned towards us, who sees us in our need and acts to meet it consistently. Thank you. Will you now act to meet further needs in each of us here? Perhaps needs that are corporate, that that are shared by all of us, but perhaps needs that are personal, individual, and and maybe even unknown, perhaps even unknown to us ourselves. Would you act to undo wrong patterns and to strengthen right patterns of, of thinking and and hoping, and acting? Would you lift up people in brokenheartedness, and would you humble people in pride? Would you use this passage before us to do these and other things, to to give to us yourself, and to give to us still more grace this morning, to conform us to what we are supposed to be, to conform us to yourself? We ask you for that. And we ask you for that because you're the only one who can do it. We can't do that for ourselves. I can't do that for us. Only you can. So we turn and look to you and say, Father, pour out your spirit, build your people, and honor your name. And use this passage and this time towards that end. Spirit, would you run through this room now and have your way with us to to calm our minds and draw in our attention and give us focus to hear from you. Open your word and make the truth in it run and then cause it to rest in us and grow up and produce a crop 30, 60, 100 times. Do that this morning, Lord, here in this place and with those who hear it afterwards, use this passage to build your people, to honor your name. So we pray for Lord, accomplish that purpose, build your people, and honor the name of Jesus. Pray for that in His name, Amen. Turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter eleven. As we saw last week, there is a natural flow from the end of chapter ten into this chapter. Story of Mary and Martha. End of chapter 10 presses upon us the importance of communion with God, our first priority as disciples, first and foremost. Communion with God, particularly what's emphasized there is we see Mary sitting at the feet of the Lord to listen to his word, particularly emphasized there, communion with God and the scriptures, his word, the Bible. That's the note struck at the end of 10, which flows quite naturally into the beginning of chapter 11 and the subject of prayer. A a second, another key aspect of this priority of communion with God. So we've got the scripture, and then chapter 11 we move into prayer. And as this chapter starts off, we once again see Jesus praying, as has been shown to us many times in the Gospel of Luke. There's There's a clear model being laid out for us, the Lord prays. Shown to us repeatedly. And then here finally a disciple says, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And what we get from that is Luke's version of what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's not meant to be a prayer that is recited word for word, wrote. If nothing else, the difference between Matthew and Luke's account reveal that he, he explained it in a bunch of different ways at different times. It's not word for word this way, nor does it really flow very well as a prayer. But rather what he's doing is he's giving us categories. Like, Things to, to address in prayer and, and ways to address them. What we pray about and how. That's what he's giving us. And particularly, we start off, here's our, our first piece of approach we looked at this last week. We start off talking to our Father. Not literal Father. But he has chosen to make us his children. When he adopted us and saved us, he chose to make us his children, which means he chose to make himself Father to us, he became our father when we became Christians, and so as Christians we have a unique privilege. We pray as children talking to an attentive dad. There's there's intimacy there. So we pray to our Father, and then we ask him. The first couple requests there in verse two were then to turn and ask him about a couple things related to himself, that his name, he himself would be hallowed, revered, and honored, and not regarded as ordinary and and discarded, but that his name would be hallowed and that he would bring his kingdom in all of its fullness one day, that he would cause Jesus to to come back and to be set up as as king and and to reign everywhere on the earth, that he would cause his name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come finally and fully. And we prayed that because we can't make it happen. Only he can. That was last week the first section in, in verse 2 of this prayer. And now this week, as we move to verses 3 and 4, the, the, the focus shifts into what we are asking God to do with regard to us directly, other Christians. It's, it's all plural. It's, it's us praying about us, which will be constantly on our minds as we move through this, these uh, two verses here. We're talking to God about what we were asking him to do for us so I'm going to cover these, these three requests here in verses 3 and 4. And, and as I do that, on the one hand, the requests are short and not very complicated. Like we can read them and we can understand them. So we're going to talk about what they are and what they are about. But as I do that, I'm going to try to talk about maybe the, the bigger picture that each one of these little requests connects to. And so as a prelude, think, I'm talking about a particular request and that relates to sanctification. Change the words. That, that relates to growth to be like Christ. That relates to maturity. So there's the particular request, and then I'm going to try to draw connections to how this, how this is meant to shape us in our growth. That's what we're going to be looking at today, the second half of the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to read the whole thing, beginning verse 2. It's short. And then I'll make three observations from the three requests in verses 3 and 4. So this is Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Short prayer. Verses 3 and 4 make three, re- three observations from the request. Here's the first one. Slightly longer, I think. We need God to meet our physical needs in a way that also helps our faith. In a way that also helps our faith. We need God to meet our physical needs in a way that also, and, and I might even say, I thought about saying, and especially helps our faith. We'll see where that goes in a moment. But obviously, initially, we are asking the Father to give us something, and our translations say our daily bread. However, you may know from other readings or maybe even your footnote, there's, there are different ways that's rendered because it's hard to know exactly how to put the original wording basic idea is, is almost certainly that of a consistent food ration. A, an allotment of food that is given and then eaten, and then another ration is given and then eaten, another one given and eaten. Kind of that, that pattern is what's in view here. Day by day, a regular process that, that's underlined by the grammar in the word give. This is give not only once, not once and done, and not sometime in the future, but give regularly, continually, in an ongoing sense, day by day, this regular allotment. So, daily bread. Which, of course, is food, but not just food. We don't want to think of it only as food. It's, it's what is needed to sustain life. So, we have food, You would have drink included there and shelter and clothing and health and safety, etc. This is the request in this prayer, the particular request that has us praying to our Father about us. It's all plural. Us praying to the Father about us and asking Him for the provision of particular tangible physical needs, what's needed to sustain us physically. Maybe not what we think we need, but what is needed to sustain us. The whole body, there's a a plural, a community aspect of this, which does not mean that we don't actually work to provide the needs that the body has. We can't say either pray or sacrifice and give and help. No, both. We are, as, as a community, we have a responsibility to each other to sacrifice and to give from my abundance into your need. That's That's how the body is supposed to work, but it's not supposed to work like that to the exclusion of praying. We pray also. This is a prayer. And we're asking God to do it because he's the one who does it. Which might seem a little odd because... We know, don't we, that most of the world doesn't pray like this, and most of the world still eats. Most of the world is not the people of God and still has shelter, still has clothing. So why, why do we pray this? I mean, we kind of need to, to state that honestly. We are aware that we're praying, we're asking God to give us something that everybody else also has, and they don't ask. What what's going on there well in in one very real sense we are praying because we realize that everybody else is seemingly providing their own daily bread with borrowed resources and borrowed strength we're, we're acknowledging that as we pray yes in fact people Seem to provide for themselves with their own muscles and their own brains and their own resources. But that's because God has said, your brain will work and your muscles will work, and the resources will exist, and you will be able to put it all together. That, that's all God. So we're we're in praying, we're acknowledging this seems it seems like Bart Simpson once prayed, the great theologian Bart Simpson saw him say grace one time Lord thanks for nothing because we bought all this stuff ourselves amen that's Bart Simpson of course but that's what it seems like doesn't like in some way we're engaged in this game we say thank you to God and they have it too and they don't say thank you but what we're acknowledging Lord we know it came all from you from your hand and you can give it And you can take it away. So we want to declare we know and we believe that it came from you. And we're asking, provide it again, please. We're expressing something and, in fact, are doing something as we express it. We are, in fact, rolling ourselves onto God and saying, please, I know I could go out and get, but I'm asking you as I go out to get, will you provide? Will you make my muscles and my brain work and will you provide resources? So in part we pray acknowledging this belief and we pray each day for it as children talking to a father who gives. So that right on the surface is is clear, I think. And as a Christian, we probably think through this request and we understand, yes, of course, it all comes from him through the various means that he has decreed, yes, but it comes from him, and so I'm asking him that all makes perfect sense. There's a little bit more here, I think. Something beyond just the straightforward that comes up as we think about the, this daily for the daily portion piece. Give us this day our daily bread. Wouldn't it be more efficient to say, give us this week our weekly bread? Or this month our monthly bread? Frankly, that's how we shop for groceries and how we pay employees because it's a hassle to go to the grocery store every single day. Or to have to pay somebody every single day. We pay them every two weeks or every month because it's easier. It simplifies things. So why doesn't God do it that way? Why doesn't God say, pray weekly or monthly for your allotment? Is it just because they didn't have refrigerators back then and it had to be daily? Is that why? No, of course not. Something else going on here beyond just the straightforward we need him to provide, and so we ask him. Think what's going on here. And and I'm not and I'm not in any way, I'm not in any way trying to disparage the, the importance of the first primary level. So I'm going beyond it, but I'm not I'm not trying to remove that one or, or denigrate that one. It is clearly important that we ask him for our daily bread for provision, but I'm going beyond it because that's probably, if we pray any of the things in this request, that's the one we don't forget. We don't forget to pray for our physical needs. We don't forget to pray for our health and for our jobs and for our safety. We, we remember that. So I, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for that by any stretch. I just want to move us in thinking beyond that, to a little bit more. Why daily for the daily portion because our good Father wants to provide for us, His children, something more and more vital than just bread. He wants to build, strengthen our faith in Him, and He knows that if He grabs hold of the physical provision lever, that that's one that will gain purchase in our lives. It'll it'll stick into our lives, and he can use that one to move us because we pay close attention to our physical needs. So he's going to use this type of request here to, to lever us, to move us on towards deeper faith. Does this phrase... Daily for a daily portion from God, if I put it like that, make you think of anything else in God's history of dealing with His people? Any other time when God overtly used this lever exactly to move His people? Two weeks ago, Mary and Martha, what was the verse that was behind that whole story? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes to the mouth of the Lord. That's what's touched on several points in that story. Do you know the first part of that verse? Same verse. First part of that verse is about, in the context of God testing his people in the wilderness. And he led them out where they were hungry and broken, and then fed them with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers, to teach you that man does not live, the rest of the verse. Manna. God's daily portion provided daily. Every day. What's the point there? You can read the whole story in Exodus 16. There's, there's actually a phrase very similar to this wording in, in the story in Exodus 16. Manna in the wilderness. The point being, he tested them and led them out into a place where they had nothing in their hands. And he humbled them because they realized they could not provide for themselves and in a sense of need and with stomachs tightened up in hunger. He then fed them with manna which nobody saw coming. That's the part about which is unknown to your fathers. Nobody said, well, there will be manna because they didn't know. Manna didn't exist. He fed them in a way totally unknown and totally unexpected, totally uncounted on. He fed them in a way that was utterly impossible, impossible in their eyes to teach them what? You need me. You cannot provide for yourselves. You need me. And I'll provide for you in ways that you can't see. You cannot live on sight. You look around, there isn't anything here but I'm still trustworthy. I'm going to put you in a situation where you are hungry and you have need today and you turn to me and trust me and I will meet it and tomorrow you're going to be right back in the same spot. Hungry and in need with nothing. Trust me, I'll provide and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow for 40 years is how I'm going to feed you. Every single day teaching you I cannot live by sight. I have to live by faith in the one who said, I will meet your needs. And he teaches them that lesson every day for 40 years. To grow them in faith. Daily for the daily allotment. That was his way of dealing with them and is often his way of dealing with us now. And if we're honest, we don't really like that. That's the point. That's the point, right there. We don't really like that. What he's doing deliberately is he is causing us to bump into something, a question that that lives right here. I want to live by sight. I want you to put it all right here and to provide it all for me so that I don't have to trust you. It has been said a bunch of times. I don't know who said this first. That if God did that, if God put it all right here and provided for us, say, once a lifetime allotment, he knows that would be the last time he'd hear from me. So he doesn't do that. You've heard that before probably. But additionally, not just that that'd be the last time he'd hear from me, but it wouldn't build any faith in me. And that is of greater worth than gold or bread or anything. Faith built up in me. So God is orchestrating events constantly, and this is so uncomfortable for us. This is how he works to put us in need and to provide. In need and to provide. Now, it could be that, that you have no apparent sense today for food to be provided. Your pantry's full and the bank account's full. So he works something else. Shelter your kid's health, something. He consistently deals with us this way. Put something there. And then we see in our need, "Ah, God, I can't see how you're going to come through. Please do. And he does. He deals with us this way on purpose to build faith in us. Think of how important faith is. This is of such importance. Faith, think of the the words of Hebrews 11, the assurance of what's hoped for. I'm pointing that way into the future. The certain conviction of what's been promised. The rock-solid knowledge that what has been said I'll get, I'll get. Or what I won't get, I won't get. I'm pointing this way, always in the future, because faith is always future-looking. Faith is always about something promised by God out there ahead of me. It might just be five seconds from now or 5,000 years from now. It's about something provided ahead. And faith is so critical. It is necessary because it is the driver. It is the power for every other Christian virtue right now. Every other Christian virtue right now. Every other Christ-like virtue Movement in my mind, heart, or hands, every other Christ-like movement right now is empowered by, is driven by, faith. So if God wants my sanctification, remember the thing I'm trying to tie all this into, if God wants my sanctification, he's going to work to build my faith How does does faith drive that? Well, think. Think of things we've seen so far in Luke. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And you will gain your life. That's a promise about what will be in the future. I have to decide, is that true or not? Will I or will I not? Faith question. Because that's the ground for give your life away now. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And great will be your reward in heaven. I have to decide right now, is that true or not? Will there be reward for me in heaven? Because right now they're going to take my life away from me. The only way to do that, to give my life away now, is if I am promised and is actually true that I get it back. Faith drives everything now. If he's going to grow me in Christ's likeness. He's going to grow faith in me. How's he going to do that? How's he build faith? By establishing a 40-year track record of daily provision. You are empty-handed, I provide. You are empty-handed, I provide. You are empty-handed, I provide. For 40 years, people in the wilderness. And for us, a track record of provision in our lives that goes all the way back ultimately to the bread sent down from heaven to meet our needs. He's kept his promise consistently in your past, Christian, to meet your needs, to carry you to this point. You are here. And at the beginning of that is the great keeping of the promise to send bread from heaven to feed your soul once forever. He intends to grow us up as a people to mature us, to grow us in Christ's likeness, to produce in us every Christian virtue. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Think of obedience to the command to lay down your life. Think of anything you can, and beneath that you will find faith driving it. Faith that is forward-looking. Faith that grows and is strengthened as we look back at God's faithfulness, ultimately back at God's faithfulness to save This is what God is doing in our lives. God is building a record of his faithfulness to you, beginning with the cross and then every day continuing to build in you faith that his promises in the future will be met, will be kept. And faith is what leads you into obedience to walk with him right now. This is a good God who leaves you stranded in the dark, unable to see right now. Wait a minute, what? This is a good God who leaves you unemployed with no job opportunities. A good God. A good God is the one who provides me a job. No. This is a good God who takes you into the despair of illness and leaves you there. No, 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 no. A good God's the one who gets me out. No, 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 no. It's a good God who takes you into the wilderness and leaves you hungry. Why is that a good God? Did you follow what I was saying? That's a good God because what he has done is he's brought you to the point of facing the faith question. He's brought you to the point of saying, I cannot see. I can't see an out here. And he said, trust me. When he works in those situations, in those situations that are very unnerving and very uncomfortable, which we do not like, that is a good God because he is putting his finger on and seeking to massage, to to strengthen, to build up. that so critical. That highly valuable faith. Calling you to say, look back, see my faithfulness, look back ultimately to the cross and trust me to have you in the future. That's a good God who works to build your faith. He works to provide all of our needs, not all of our wants, but all of our needs in a way that also helps our faith. Thanks be to God for working like this. And I, I understand that when I say thanks be to God for working like this, that as far as I know, I'm not standing here fatally ill. And I have a job. And I've got a house. And I have reason to believe that nobody's going to break into the worship service with a gun. So it's easy to say that. I I understand that. Don't slide out from this because that's easy for you to say. It's the truth. When Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, he's talking about a little loop that is a constant. I have a need, please meet it. That's how God wants to work with us, and that's for our good. If you find yourself in a particular need, it's for your good. He's at work to do you good. He can be trusted. He's a good father. Second, Christians still need regular repentance and the resulting forgiveness of our Father. Christians still need regular repentance and the resulting forgiveness of our Father. Verse 4 says and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us indebted not financially but indebted in a sin sense and at first glance there's an obvious connection between the two halves of this verse that we need to figure out we need to understand the forgiveness of us in the beginning is somehow connected to the us forgiving others in the second part so how is it related what should we draw from that well we shouldn't take from it. What it isn't saying is this is the recipe for how you become a Christian. It's not saying that if I forgive other people, if I be a forgiving person, then God will forgive me and I'll get into heaven. Not only is the rest of the Bible extremely clear that what we do has nothing whatsoever to do with God forgiving us, But this passage itself makes that clear because this is a prayer prayed by Christians. People who already are Christians. So this isn't how a Christian becomes a Christian. It's how a Christian prays. How a disciple prays. We already are, as Christians, we already are standing before God, and if you use these two words, in in our position before God, we already stand clean, forgiven. But we have a daily condition. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about down here, the daily condition. We are people who are forgiven, praying about being forgiven. Please forgive us, us Christians, of our sins for, because, there's some reasoning here, this is the ground behind my request, for, we ourselves, emphasis there, he's trying to put a little punch into something, You could put it like, for we indeed do forgive all who have sinned against us. Not just the people that we like, not just those who are really, really sorry and apologetic, but everyone. So, because we have forgiven all of them, we ask you, Father, please forgive us. Well, what's going on there? Well, it's not really that hard. Simply put, we're rejecting hypocrisy. If you put it real simply, what we're saying is I'm, I'm not, we are not the, the kind of man, remember the parable that Jesus told about the guy who was forgiven an insurmountable debt and then hypocritically turned around and brutalized the guy owed him pocket change? Jesus told that parable to show this is a person who actually doesn't get it, who doesn't understand forgiveness, who isn't actually standing in the place of a Christian, who's a hypocrite. We're not like that. We, we disavow that. We, we understand. We have received forgiveness from you, Father. It has actually gripped us and changed us. It has flowed through us. And in faith, see the faith connection there? And in faith, we have looked at offenses done and believe that you will settle justice and you will restore everything that was lost that we need. Faith looking forward drives forgiveness right now, just like last point. So we we understand that. We are like that father. So that's the second half, which we need to pause on and ask, are you like that? It's worth considering. Christian, are you a broad forgiver of others? are you a broad and easy forgiver of those who have done you wrong I'm not saying forgiveness is easy but are you an easy forgiver is is your posture one of forgive now realistically There are offenses done against us that are grievous and our posture of forgive is going to often be immediately followed by, no, forgive, no. I read an article one time about a woman who was sexually abused by her father. She's an adult. This was when she was a child. She said, I had to forgive him and forgive him. Because for 30 years, every Christmas, I think about family, I think about my dad, and you know what pops to my mind when I think about that? And that never becomes, oh, sure, no problem. No, it never becomes that. It grieves her every time it pops to her mind, so she's got to forgive him and then next Easter, and next Christmas, and his birthday, and her birthday, and, 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 and. She's got to forgive and forgive. It's not easy, but she's an easy forgiver because what she does is forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And forgive. You understand what I'm saying there? That's not easy, but she is a ready forgiver, I might say. Are you a forgiver, a broad forgiver? And are you inclined towards forgiveness? And when do you find yourself not inclined towards forgiveness? Do you attend to the faith muscle? Or the teeth-gritting muscle? (sighs) Okay, I forgive you. No, 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 no. What drives the Christian virtue of forgiveness? Faith. Faith when I find myself not broadly forgiving and not easily forgiving, what I do is not attend to forgiveness, but attend to faith. What promise do I grab hold of? That you judge justly. Think of 1 Peter. That's how the Lord himself turned his other cheek and did not revile when reviled and did not harm when cursed, but instead entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I believe in faith, Father, that you will settle all accounts. Whatever that looks like, that's on you. You're the judge. And whatever loss, whatever crime has been committed against me, I believe you will make right. I do not need a pound of flesh myself. In faith, I look at the promises of God for me and forgive. When you find yourself challenged to forgive, do you attend to the faith muscle? We We need that. We need to think about that and consider that. It's That's the back end of this this verse, of this request. And like that, as as a person who is standing in faith, forgiving, 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 then the first half of that, that person then turns to his or her father and says, Please forgive me of my sins. Forgive us of our sins. And in noting the plural, sins, and remembering this is a category, not a phrase to be recited, this is not forgive us of our sin, of sin, it's sins. Here are my sins. And as I, as I come to this category, as we, as I myself sit and, and pray, I think, forgive us of my or our sins, What's supposed to happen is sins come to mind. Not the fact that I'm a sinner, but that I have done this, 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 these sins. He tells us to pray like this and to ask for it because we need it. We need this facing of our sins. To be humbled and broken by our sins. Many of us are more aware of our face, what it looks like, what our hair looks like at the moment, the clothes we're wearing, and the number of followers we have on Instagram than we are of our sins. We're all aware we're a sinner but can you enumerate your sins? The ways you are inclined, the things with, with attitude, with your heart, with your hands, that you, that you do, and the frequency with which you do them, and the ways and the situations in which you do them, which you sin against God, your Father. In asking us to ask him to forgive us of our sins, Jesus wants us to consider our sins, to become, if you think back to what I said before, to become law-oriented. Here's the law of God, and here are the ways and the times and situations in which I break that law. Why? Isn't it all been forgiven? Yes, yes, in the big picture, in the, the position before God, yes. And from that forgiveness, we do this. So why does he want us to, to, to condemn ourselves, to, to kind of keep us down under the heel, like a, rubbing a dog's nose in it? You know, is, that, is that what he's trying to do here? no yes no certainly certainly immediately after immediately after the, the awareness, the recognition, the acknowledgement of my sins immediately after that there, there does indeed come necessarily, properly come guilt come a sense of condemnation it's sin it's wrong it's forbidden it's against God the hallowed one so of course guilt and condemnation follows on the heels of personal awareness of personal sins as does humility and brokenness and we realize that we're not all that like we thought we were we thought we were pretty decent people until we stopped and thought about it and opened up the law of God and became law-oriented and realized: oh, that's who I am. In a way, what I'm talking about here is something that modern Christianity is foreign to, to our loss. We 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 skate up here. Thank God I'm forgiven. Let's rejoice. I am completely, completely, completely blood earnest about rejoicing, but that ain't how you get it. That is not how you get it. By just staying up here, you get rejoicing by this. You get rejoicing by Luke 7, Simon, or the woman. Which one? Simon or the woman? Remember the story? Which one loved much? The one who knew what she was forgiven of. The woman is already forgiven. She sits. Remember the important grammar point we made? This is, I mean, Luke 7 was like 10 years ago. But when we were in Luke 7, important grammar point. She's already forgiven. She's forgiven. She has been forgiven much, important grammar point. And here she is weeping, pouring out her life savings on his feet and wiping it off with her hair. And Jesus says, I got a question for you, smug Simon. Somebody owed a lot and somebody owed a little and both were forgiven, who loved more. I don't know, Jesus, I suppose the one who was forgiven much, Uh uh-huh, yep, like this one, not like you. Where you get to joy is like this, like the woman, not like Simon, living up here perpetually. It is for our great good, it is for our sanctification, for our faith, for our joy, that we move into our sins and contemplate them and see them in all of our brokenness, and that we be a people who perpetually weep and mourn and hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is for Christians all through their lives. The Beatitudes are for Christians all through their lives. That we be a people like that so that we can be immediately on top of that a people of great love and of great, vast joy. When you find yourself joyless and and empty, do not try to lightly heal that wound, but instead say, this is my sin. Oh, my word. This is my Savior. This is the tragedy of our day that we try to cut out the first and elevate the second and it inevitably becomes empty. It inevitably becomes light. Saviors in anything are more glorious in comparison to that which they save you from. Think of something trivial like sports. The guy who makes a basket on the basketball court is not important until you were down by one with no time left, and he made that basket. Then he's king. It's in the moment of need that deliverance shines, and our hearts are drawn on to him, and faith is built, which drives joy, the Christian virtue, which drives love, the Christian virtue, If he gave me Christ, and this was me, and this would be me, even as a Christian, will he not also along with me, give him, give me all, with him give me all things indeed? He will continue to wipe away all my sin, and he will deliver me into glory. That is a good Savior. We need to come before God with our sins to see them, to feel the weight of them. This is, I'm not, I can't say when in time this changed, but this is what Christianity was like until recently. A Christianity that lived in the Beatitudes constantly But did not stay, did not stay under condemnation, but actually believed the gospel on top of it. That's Christianity. To believe sin and the gospel, to believe loss and a savior. And Jesus tells us to pray, forgive us our sins because we need to be mindful of our sins and need to be mindful of the the experience of them wiped away today again. And the smile of a gracious, of a gracious, of a gracious vast, wide, long, high, deep lover of your souls who comes and takes away all your sin and says, mine over you to keep that fresh, to keep you away from being Simon, to keep you as ever that woman at Jesus' feet. We need to regularly work, forgive us our sins, to pray and to think and to contemplate. We pray, forgive us, and he does, and that's what leads us out of sin and destruction and into joy. Thirdly, We need God to protect us from the power of temptation. We need God to protect us from the power of temptation. I'm going to go back to the. Understand, I am, I said it already, I am extremely, extremely, Concerned that we be a people who rejoice. I am not, I am not about doom and gloom. So if that's what you heard, I misspoke or you misheard. I'm talking about the path to real joy. And it comes through reflecting on our sin. Forgive us of that, oh my word, the gospel is true. Pat the joy. We need God to protect us from the power of temptation. Prayer ends, and lead us not into temptation. Once again, plural, we're praying for the whole body still. And what are we asking for here? Well, in saying lead us, what we're acknowledging is that God directs all of our steps. We are not actually praying, Lord, please don't tempt me. Bible's clear, God does not tempt us. So it's not a please don't tempt me, God. It also is not, there's nothing wrong with praying like this, but it also is not a prayer, a request, keep all temptation away from me. That's not wrong to pray, particularly if you know of a particular weakness of yourself or of others in the body, a friend. Child, spouse to pray keep that particular temptation away that that's a good thing that's a wise thing to pray that's not exactly what he has in mind here once god decided to create a physical world and give us senses that can detect the world and a heart that can process it and then we're processing it as fallen people that means there's going to be temptation so to pray lord keep all temptation away from me always would be to pray lord change the world We live, put a picture on it, we live on the beach, face to face with an ocean of temptation. What we're praying is not take me away from the ocean, but keep me out of the ocean while I stand looking right at it, all day long, every day. Keep me out of, lead me not into that. If I get into the water, I'm at least going to get wet, and I don't know, I may meet a riptide and be drawn out to sea and killed. Keep me out of it. We're just praying about sin, forgive me sin, and what this is saying is that I don't actually even want to sin. So would you so grow me to keep me out from the power of temptation, to keep me out from falling to it? And understanding what the request is, maybe helps us understand how he might answer this request. He's not going to answer this request by keeping all of the images off my television screen. Keeping the temptation away. They're going to come if I'm watching TV or if I'm driving down the street. If if I'm living in the world, the temptations are going to come. How he might answer this is not by keeping them away, but it's going to, help if i understand this i'm going to see like he's going to help me in the fight against temptation to keep me out from the power of it this is a prayer because the fight against temptation is not just one of willpower or technique it requires supernatural spiritual help from god help from god to help in the fight against temptation. So how might he do that? Well, to put it briefly, by his Spirit, in his presence, with his word, he will make the truth clear to you and make the truth attractive to you. Or I could put this another way and say, He will hold up His promises. The truth about who He is for you and will be for you will cause you to see them and to properly see the false promises of the world. That's what temptations are promises from the world. Come here. Come here, says the world. Come here. This will, this will be good for you. This will help you. This will bless you. This will, this will be fun. This is what you deserve. Those are statements from the world, whispered in your ear, promises. And he will, with his word, hold up his promises and show them in your heart by his spirit to be true and show these promises from the world to be false. And so he will build faith in you in his promises. So all that was by his spirit, in his presence, with his word. What that means is good luck praying, lead me not into temptation. I'm going to have nothing to do with your word, nothing to do with your presence, nothing to do with your spirit. Lead me not into temptation. That's not going to happen. So to put it a different way, He answers this prayer for Mary, for Mary's. He answers this prayer not just while we are sitting in front of the TV and the thing pops up, or not just while we are driving down the street and we see the ad. He answers this prayer every morning as I by myself sit in his presence like Mary and listen to his teaching. And in my mind, talk to my gracious Father and ask Him to hallow His name in my heart and think forward to His coming kingdom and ask Him to to remind me of how He has provided food for me, provided everything I need in the past and ask Him to enumerate my sins and to wipe them away as He shows me all of that. That all builds up and makes me someone who is like a tall wall. When a grappling hook flies at the wall, it hits the wall and there's nothing to catch. It builds me up and makes me a tall wall. The grappling hooks are going to come. The world's going to attempt to grab you and pull you down. Lead me not into temptation. In other words, Father, Father, meet me morning by morning over your word and show me what is actually true and make me wise in the face of the world. Show me my sins and show me your forgiveness of them. Show me a God who is great. Show me a kingdom that is coming and lead me in faith to follow you. Lead me not into temptation. So we pray this, and we seek his face. And as we pray and seek his face, he builds us up. And then in the moment of temptation, what we see is exposed. What we see is illumined by another truth. That's the spiritual work of God in our hearts. So when we pray, we pray, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Let me pray. Father, would you build us your people? Would you mature us? Would you grow us to be more like Christ? Each of us comes here with particular needs, and I pray, Father, would you meet them, and would you continue to meet them as you hold up in front of us these particular elements of bread and cup? You remind us of the bread sent from heaven to meet our need. You remind us of the bloodshed to forgive us of our sins. Lord, speak to us. Grow us up in whatever ways are necessary. Call us to yourself. Strengthen us in the truth and strengthen us against temptation. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. Amen.